A number of years ago, there was this baby who was born in Ontario, Canada. Anybody been to Ontario? few of you. Good. I have not. Uh, but this kid was born in Ontario, and uh, being from Canada, having the parents that he did, they very quickly took him outside to the ice, to where he knew how to ice skate by the time he was two. Ice skating, they gave him a hockey stick kind of to help him stabilize as he's skating around, and um, he grew to love it so much that when he wasn't eating in school or sleeping, he was outside on the ice with a hockey stick in his hand. He grew up, he became six years old, he was playing in a 10-year-old league at six, and dominating the 10-year-old kids. One season he scored 218 goals, or no, excuse me, 286 goals as a six-year-old in a 10-year-old league. Uh, he continued to play, went on to play juniors. He was scouted by the NHL. And when they came to scout him, before they saw him play, they would try to size him up. Well, he wasn't the biggest. He wasn't the strongest. And he definitely wasn't the fastest. And they looked at that and thought, there's no way this guy's any good. Because they just took it as what they saw. But then they saw him play and everything changed. Because there was something in this guy that was different than everybody else on the ice. He was smarter, uh, and like I said, he wasn't faster, but the way he moved and where he went on the ice blew everybody else out to the point of he continued to score goals no matter who was in front of him, no matter what team he was up against. He had a devotion to the game that surpassed everyone else. And so they would think about it, and that's the name of the sermon today, what does devotion look like? Well, it looked like that, someone who was so devoted that he surpassed everybody. To the point, this guy, when he retired in 1999 to today, so 23 years later, 60 of his NHL records still stand. When he retired in 99, there were 61 records that he had. So in the ensuing 23 years, only one record of his 61 had been broken. He, his records are so, this is Wayne Gretzky. His nickname, because he so far exceeded everyone else, was the great one. I'm sure growing up in various formats, from school to sports, other things, you had nicknames. I don't know if any of my nicknames growing up were that good. Uh, they just said, there's the great one. Um, but I'll tell you how good his records are. He, he has the record for the most goals in an NHL career. It's like 2,800, oh, I know it, 2,854. I looked it up this morning. The next highest guy has 1,900 goals. Almost 1,000 more goals than the next guy. Nobody's going to catch that record, not even close to that. Because of his devotion to this thing, he, 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 he studied the opposing team. He studied hockey. He studied when one guy would come down the ice and his body was moving this way. He knew where that puck was going. And so his famous quote, you skate to where the puck's going, not to where it is. And so he would skate to where it was going. He would intercept it and he would score. Far surpassing. Nobody else could figure out his mind because nobody else was as devoted as he was. 
It's, it reminds me a lot of Michael Jordan, who was always said, when his mom would try to call him in for dinner, in his mind, Michael Jordan would imagine some other kid out there in America practicing just 15 more minutes than he was. And so he would ask his mom, can I just have one more hour? Just, just one more hour. Because he was so devoted. It's that kind of devotion to what they were pursuing, to what they considered their personal calling. They were devoted in a way that nobody else was. And that word devotion is very important when we get to the first passage of Scripture this morning. Acts chapter 2, verse 42. We looked at it briefly last week. It's on page 911 if you're using a, a Bible on the pew rack uh, there in front of you. And if you don't have a Bible, take that Bible home with you. We have others we can replace that one with. Everybody needs a Bible, so take that one. It's yours. Uh, so just Acts chapter 2, verse 42. Uh, just a little context. Um, if you're unfamiliar, you know, Jesus came and he died and he rose from the dead. He had some followers. He had 120 followers. He told them to go back in the city and wait for the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit came 10 days later and those followers, 120 of them, were able to speak other languages. And so they went out into the street and they began to share the gospel in all these other languages. And at the end of that day, 3,000 more people got saved from that 120 people who were sharing the gospel. And so now with these 3,000 people, they began to uh, uh, try to figure out what are they supposed to do now with 3,120 people? What are they supposed to do as God's church? And they did five things, which is what we're going to be looking at over these next few weeks, beginning with Acts chapter 2, verse 42, the first thing they did. And they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and the fellowship and the breaking of bread and the prayers. So they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching, to the apostles' teaching. That is scripture. They were teaching scripture. They devoted themselves. It's that word devoted I want to key in on there. Uh, that word specifically in the original language, it means to persevere. I think I've got this. Did I put this definition? Oh, there it is. Good. I can't remember if I did it or not. Uh, to persevere, to persist obstinately in. Now, don't raise your hand, but do you know anybody who persists obstinately in something? Probably when they probably shouldn't. But anyway, uh, to persist obstinately in to spend much time in, to be constantly in, to be faithful to. So when it says they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching, they persisted in it, they spent much time in it, they were faithful to Scripture, they were constantly in Scripture, is what it's saying, to the apostles' teaching, who were, they were teaching Scripture. But as I was studying here, Tony, go back to that verse 42 there, uh, the apostles' teaching this week, God brought something to my mind that, Honestly, I'd, I'd overlooked every other time I've studied this passage. They devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching. And I asked the question as I was looking at this, what were the apostles teaching? Like I said a minute ago, they were teaching Scripture. But let's break it down more specifically. Does anybody remember the last thing Jesus told the apostles? Look at Matthew 28, verse 20. The Great Commission, Jesus tells the apostles to do this thing, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you, and behold, I'm with you always to the end of the age. So Acts 2.42 tells us that the church devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching. The apostles were teaching something. They were teaching what Jesus told them to teach here in Matthew 28.20, everything he commanded them. So they were fulfilling Jesus' commission to them. Jesus said, go out and teach this stuff. And so they were doing that, and, and the church was devoted, they were de the church uh, was devoting itself, the people of the church were devoting themselves 
to what they were teaching, Scripture, or as Jesus said here, everything that I have commanded you. Now, a legalist would look at this passage of Scripture, kind of like what the Pharisees did with God's Word of the Old Testament, and they would say, okay, it says, they were teaching them to observe all that I've, so all of Jesus' commands, is, that's what we need to key in on right there. And if we make a list of all of Jesus' commands, and people have, there's about 40 to 50 specific commands Jesus made in the Gospels, then we just adhere to that and we just make sure we're checking those boxes and we're all good. As long as we get just those commands, then we're all good. Because that's fulfilling what he said. All that I've commanded you, that's what the church was being devoted to, the apostles' teaching. They were teaching Jesus' commands. But they were teaching more than just those 40 to 50 specific commands that Jesus said. And so, if you ask yourself, should we follow just those specific commands Jesus teach, that Jesus taught? No, we should follow more than that because of what Paul wrote in 2 Timothy chapter 3. Paul writes, All Scripture is breathed out by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, and for training in righteousness, that the man of God may be complete, equipped for every good work. So, in verse 16, Paul said, all Scripture is breathed out by God. So all Scripture, all of Scripture, Genesis chapter 1, all the way through the end of Revelation, it is inspired by God. It's God's Word, every piece of it. Even the pieces you find hard to follow. Even the pieces uh, uh, you, you're not, maybe not liking so much. Even pieces that might be a little hard to read, like the genealogies. It's all inspired by God, is what he says there. It's all God's word. It's all from his mouth. And so when Jesus said, teach them everything that I've commanded you, he's saying, teach them all of scripture. Don't just teach them the easy stuff. Don't just teach them the stuff people want to hear. Don't be just like Acts 2.42. Don't just be devoted to the easy ones or the ones that are easily quotable. Love your neighbor as yourself. Um... Love God, love people. Uh, he says, teach them what we should be doing, absolutely. But we need to be in Scripture, at the same level of devotion that those first Christians had, digesting it, ingesting it, having it be a part of who we are. You see, being devoted to all of Scripture, it's more, though, than just reading it. It's more than just hearing it. It's more than just, even, it's, it's more even than just memorizing it. Being devoted to Scripture goes far beyond that. James writes in James 1, 22, James, who was the brother of Jesus, he was the pastor of the church in Jerusalem. He said, be doers of the word and not hearers only, deceiving yourselves. He says, if you only hear it and you don't live it out, you're deceiving yourself. You're lying to yourself. It's as, it's as though you're saying, this is good for me to hear, but not for me to do. And so James is saying, yeah, no, you're lying to yourself if you think that's all that knowing Scripture is. Scripture is knowing it and doing it. it it's application. Being devoted to Scripture means applying it. Being devoted to Scripture means allowing Scripture to change you. Not trying to take Scripture and fit it to you, but fit you to Scripture. Scripture's the absolute. And so we've got to be devoted to Scripture, allowing it to change our thoughts, change our habits, 
uh, uh, change our words, change our reactions to situations, allowing Scripture to guide us and mold us. And we need to be devoted to it. And the thing about devotion is that everybody is devoted to something. Everybody is devoted to something. Everybody has something in their lives that they make decisions based around. It, it forms their, their worldview, even. It, it, it directs your schedule. You see, if you have something in your life that when an event pops up and, and you get invited to something, that you think about that one thing more than you, uh, that, that, and that one thing that you're devoted to directs whether or not you go to this. Maybe it's your job. You're devoted to your job, and you should, you should have a job, and you, and you should be working at your job, and your, your job directs your decisions, obviously, or you lose your job. Um, you, you know, or, or you think maybe it's your kids, or maybe let's get a little personal. Maybe it's your kids' sports direct your decisions. Maybe it's your finances. You're devoted to your finances. And you say, well, I'm not going to do this or I'm not going to do that because I, I, you know, I don't have the money to do that. And you should make wise choices, obviously. But there is a devotion that should supersede all of it. And it's your devotion to the Lord. You see, if you're making decisions in your life based upon a devotion to any other thing before your devotion to the Lord, then all any of those other things have moved a, a, a position higher on the priority list than Jesus. And in the language of Scripture, that means you've made a God out of that thing. If it's in the place of Jesus, if it's directing your decisions more than he is, then you're devoted to that thing more than you are him. And we see here in Acts 2.42, they're devoted to the words of God. The thing we're devoted to, the thing we build our life around that influences our schedule, that influences our decisions, it will be the thing we think of the most. It will be the thing we see the most, whether we see it physically or we just see it in our mind's eye. That draws my mind to Matthew 17, when Jesus went up on a mountain and he was transfigured and, and he, he brought on a bunch of his glory that he had surrendered in order to exist on this planet. And he was joined by Moses and Elijah and he had three of his disciples there and his disciples, as God's glory descended on that mountain, they fell on their faces and the glory was there almost like a cloud. And then when the cloud went away, the disciples looked up and I love this verse, Matthew 17, 8. When they lifted up their eyes, they saw no one but Jesus only. Even though that was a, that's a physical verse, I mean, they looked up physically and they saw physically Jesus. If we are devoted to Jesus, this will define who we are. We're going to look up and see Jesus only. The health scare comes, we're going to look up and see Jesus only. The financial crisis comes, we're going to look up and see Jesus only. That person says what they say about us, we lose our job, but we look up and we see Jesus only if we're devoted to him. Let's take a look at um, some guys who are devoted to the Lord. We're going to see their devotion play out and see what that means. Daniel chapter 3. Daniel chapter 3. If you have your Bible, turn to Daniel chapter 3. Um, Daniel chapter, this is interesting. You know, you can know history and you can know it well, but it's still hard to put ourselves in that mindset 
See, the nation of Israel had been conquered by this other nation. The other nation came in, killed a bunch of the Israelites, and of those who were still alive, they grabbed all the best ones, the healthiest ones, the youngest ones, the strongest ones, and they took them back to their capital, Babylon. And they tried to brainwash them. They tried to inject them with the Babylonian culture so that they could assimilate them and, and use their, 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 their youth and use their strength and use their brain power to make their culture better. That's what Babylon did. They would conquer a nation, bring the best back, try to make themselves better. Um, and so they did this. And, and these three guys we're going to look at were some of those that they brought back from Israel. But these guys weren't brainwashed. These guys were dedicated to the Lord their God and his word. You see, what had happened was the king, really almost as a test of everyone's loyalty, had made a statue of himself, 90 feet high, covered in gold. And he invited all his officials out there, and they were going to play this, this weird game of musical chairs where the music plays, and then everybody's supposed to bow down and worship his statue. He's just, he's seeing who is really on his side. And so he does this, and everybody bows down except these three guys, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. So, I mean, just picture it in your mind, right? Everybody's bowing down, and so you just see a sea of people bowing down except three guys standing up in the middle, not bowing down. And so they pull them out, bring them to the king, and uh, he's told these guys won't bow down. And the king says, I'll give you one more chance. Play the music again, because the king likes these guys. And they play the music again, they don't bow down. Instead, they respond with these words in verse 16 of Daniel chapter 3. Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego answered and said to the king, O Nebuchadnezzar, we have no need to answer you in this matter. If this be so, our God, whom we serve, is able to deliver us from the burning, fiery furnace. You see, that was what was going to happen. The, Nebuchadnezzar, he was a man who was historically, I and mean, you can look it up in history, he was known to have a very short fuse, a very hot temper. And so almost as uh, ironic, uh, um, uh, you know, allegory, or not allegory is the wrong word, but um, representation, he had a furnace built that was hot, kind of like his temper. And he would heat it up, and everybody who was his political enemy, he would throw in there and just watch them burn alive. And so he brought one out here to his statue. He had one in town, but he also brought one out here to his statue because he wanted everybody to know, you don't bow down to my thing, I'm throwing you in there just like everybody in town that, that opposes me. And so he brings that out there and sets it up and uh, he cranks that thing up seven times hotter than it normally sets. Like, have you ever been out grilling and the temperature on your grill goes to max? Like, maybe yours doesn't, maybe it's. Uh, but if you do, it goes all the way to Mac. Well, this is like, it circles all the way around the dial seven times. And he cranks it up all the way so much that the guards standing next to this thing are burned alive. It's just so hot, the heat is coming out of the bricks. And so he tells these guys, you don't do this. I'm throwing you in the furnace just like everybody else. We're having a human barbecue today. And so look at their response. They say, uh, if it be so, our God whom we serve is able to deliver us from the burning fiery furnace and he will deliver us out of your hand. So confidence there. He will deliver us, O king. Verse 18. But if not, be it known to you, O king, that we will not serve your gods or worship the golden image that you have set up. They're saying, we know God can do it and God will do it. But even if he doesn't, and we burn alive today, 
we're still not going to bow down and worship your stuff. Because we are faithful to Jesus. We are, at this point, well, they're about to meet Jesus. <laughs> we're faithful to the Lord in all capacities, and nothing is going to make us stop. You may have heard, or maybe you've read Fox's Book of Martyrs, of this being the case of Christians throughout the centuries, facing certain death, the most painful, gruesome death, saying, no, I'm going to stand with the Lord. There's stories of some of those martyrs being strapped up on, on a bonfire with a pole, and they're strapped to this pole. There's a story. Three of these guys are on this bonfire, and they light the fire, and the guys start singing together a hymn. And they have a little, <laughs> it's, it's, it's really kind of funny, they have a little argument among themselves about what key they're supposed to be singing in as the fire is creeping up to their toes so they can sing ever louder for as long as they possibly can because they were devoted to the Lord. And so now you have Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego doing that before the king. The king they know, the king who is notoriously angry, the king who hates anybody who says anything negative about, about him, and he's going to kill them all. And so they say to the king, yeah, we're not going to listen to anything you say, and we're going to follow the Lord. And so look at the king's response. Verse 24. Then King Nebuchadnezzar was astonished having thrown them in the fire. So he, he grabs these guys. Well, he didn't grab them. He didn't do it. He's a king. He has guys who grab the guys. And they grab them and they toss them in the furnace. And as those guys fall into the furnace, now we don't know how they threw them in, maybe a side door, maybe there was a hatch on top and he had his thrown up and they went over to the side and we don't really know how it played out. But however it was, they threw Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego in the furnace and there's windows and the king can see in and this is his pride and joy, right? He likes seeing his enemies burn alive and he's like looking in all excited. But then as he looks in and those guys hit the ground, something changes. And look at what it says. He was astonished and rose up in haste. He declared to his counselors, did we not cast three men bound into the fire? They answered and said to the king, true, O king. He answered and said, but I see four men unbound walking in the midst of the fire, and they are not hurt, and the appearance of the fourth is like the son of the gods. We believe this was Jesus who showed up in that moment rescued them, walked with them through the fire. It's a perfect imagery of what happens in our lives today. When we go through fire, he's still walking with us through the fire. And so he's walking with them through the fire. Imagine, I wonder what their discussion was. Like, what was the conversation in the middle of the bonfire, like in the middle of the furnace? What were they talking about? Were they talking about Nebuchadnezzar? Were they talking about his crazy gold statue? Was Jesus giving them a look at what was going to come when he came through Mary? We don't know. It'd be great to ask him one day, like, what? so when you're in the fire, like, what'd you ask the Son of God? <laughs> like, what came up? But Jesus is there with them. Nebuchadnezzar's beside himself. Verse 26. He came near to the door of the burning fiery furnace, and he declared, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, servants of the Most High God, come out and come here. Then Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego came out of the fire, and the satraps, the prefects, the governors, the king's counselors, these are all Babylonian officials, gathered together and saw that the fire had not any power over their bodies. The hair of their heads was not singed. Their cloaks were not harmed. And no smell of fire had come upon them. And I guarantee you, everybody else in the crowd smelled like smoke. If you've been near a grill, you just outside, you smell like smoke. The only guys in the whole crowd that didn't smell like smoke were these three guys. 
28. Nebuchadnezzar answered and said, Blessed be the God of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, who has sent his angel and delivered his servants who trusted in him and set aside the king's command and yielded up their bodies rather than serve and worship any god except their own god. Therefore I make a decree. Any people, nation, or language that speaks anything against the God of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego shall be torn limb from limb, and their houses laid in ruins, for there is no other God who is able to rescue in this way. And Nebuchadnezzar obviously doesn't know anything except violence, and so that's what he decrees. Um, but go back to verse 28, and look at that. King Nebuchadnezzar, notoriously angry man, says, they disobeyed me, set aside the king's command. And it was okay, because God took care of them. They set aside the king's command, and they sacrificed themselves, and their God saved them. This is a remarkable thing to read. Nebuchadnezzar, who even though many of his people worshipped other gods, he thought of himself as a god. And now he's saying, it's okay for these men to disobey me, because there is a God better than me who has more authority than I do. It's almost as though he's saying, and I just saw him in the fire, and I'm not about to defy that. Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego showed great devotion to the Lord that day. And the Lord doesn't always deliver in this way. God's very creative. He rarely does the same thing twice. He's going to do things different for every single individual, every single opportunity, every single uh, situation that arises. But these guys, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, reacted to me with, with great confident peace. They were confident in what God could do, but that God had them the whole way no matter what happened. And they were peaceful in how they responded in the face of certain death. Think about yourself for a moment. If you were standing face to face with Nebuchadnezzar, who kills people every day, you know, 10 people before breakfast, and he's threatening to kill you if you just don't bow down. And would you be thinking, well, I can bow down and not really worship the thing. I mean, I'm, I just worship God. I'll just bow down and worship God. I don't have to, you know, he doesn't know what's going on in my heart. How would you respond in that moment? In the face of the fiery furnace being cranked up to 11 over there on the side, be like, um, like you're already feeling its heat. It's, it feels like it's singeing the hairs on your arms already and you're not even close to it. How would you have responded? These guys respond with such confident peace that they said, the first thing they say, we have no need to answer you. Yeah, we're not going to answer you. You don't deserve an answer because we're faithful to the Lord and not you. And he tosses them in the fire and God rescues them. They were devoted to the Lord, and that provided confident peace. Now, what we started looking at from Acts 2.42 said uh, the first church, the first Christians were devoted to the apostles' teaching, to Scripture. Well, I think all of this ties together because a mind that is in the Word is a mind that is on the Lord. You know, when, when we see the first Christians devoting themselves to Scripture, you can guarantee that as they are more and more devoted to Scripture and they take in more and more Scripture and they apply more and more Scripture, their mind is more and more on the Lord. A mind that is in the Word, in it, 
Not just glossing over it, not just reading it to check a box, but is in it. Remember what that word devotion means, to persevere, to persist obstinately in, to spend a whole lot of time in, be constantly in it, be faithful to it. And so if they're constantly in it, their mind is constantly going to be on the Lord, who Scripture is all about. So a mind in the Word is a mind on the Lord. And so Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego had their mind on the Lord. And that's how they were able to have the kind of confident peace that they did have. Really because of Isaiah 26, verse 3. You keep him in perfect peace, whose mind is stayed on you, because he trusts in you. That'd be a good verse for you to memorize right there. Why don't you, if you got your Bible, look at Isaiah 26.3. Underline that puppy. You keep him in perfect peace whose mind is stayed on you because he trusts in you. And what's interesting is that word stayed. The, the definition of that word is very, very similar to the word devotion. Unflinchingly firm, steadfast, having a continual focus on something which is what that word devoted is all about, being continually focused on one thing, being in something, persisting in Scripture. So he says, you keep him in perfect peace whose mind is stayed on you, whose mind remains on you, who is devoted to you. So a devotion to the Lord, remember devotion, uh, or if you're in the Word, your mind is on the Lord, a devotion to the Lord here, a devotion to the Lord has peace. And so if you follow along, tracking, if you're in the Word, then your mind is on the Lord. And if your mind is on the Lord, you have perfect peace. Not just peace, or piecemeal peace, not just a little bit of peace, not just in spurts, but perfect peace. Have you ever been in a situation when it should have been chaos to your heart and your mind? But somehow, supernaturally, you were able to be peaceful, peace-filled. Or maybe you've been in a situation like that and you've observed someone around you, maybe a member of your family, maybe you were at an, a, 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 somebody's house and something happened and you saw great peace in them, what you might call perfect peace that, that should not have been. But it was because they trusted in the Lord. Perfect peace. Peace is what he's talking about, whose mind is stayed on you. And our mind is stayed on the Lord the more we are in Scripture. You say, okay, well then, if a mind in the Word is a mind on the Lord and I get perfect peace from having my mind on the Lord, I just need more Scripture, so I'm going to put it everywhere, right? I'm going to put little post-it notes with Scripture all over the place, and I'm just going to have these, I'm going to touch them as they go out the door. And this is something actually the Old Testament Jews did. Deuteronomy chapter 6, verse 5. God's giving instructions to the people right before they're going into the promised land, trying to set them up. He's telling them, guys, you need to keep your mind on me. You need to keep your mind on the word because stuff's going to come once you get into that promised land that's going to be difficult. So he's trying to prepare them for what they're about to face. And so he tells them, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your might. And these words that I command you today shall be on your heart, so mind in the word, devoted to the word. You shall teach them diligently to your children. You shall talk about them when you sit in your house, 
when you walk by the way, when you lie down, and when you rise. So basically, all the time. Talk about it all the time. Talk about the word all the time. You know, instill it in your kids, passing it on to the next generation. So the principle, though, is that knowing God's word, being devoted to God's word. And then he says this in verse 8. You shall bind them as a sign on your hand, and they shall be frontlets between your eyes. You shall write them on the doorposts of your house and on your gates. And so what ended up happening because of those two verses is they took those absolutely literally, and they would put them in the doorframe. Some, some would have like a little a box next to their, their doorframe leaving the house, and they would put some scrolls in there. They would write it on the gates. They would uh, uh, put scripture uh, on their sleeves, hanging around their hands. They would put scripture in, dangling down from, from a robe that they had or, or a headband. It would be there in front of their eyes. But think about this again. Remember this whole passage in Deuteronomy chapter 6. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart. You shall uh, uh, be devoted. The, the, these words that I command you, my word shall be on your heart. And since it's on your heart, he's saying, this is how it is. Because it's on your heart, you're teaching it to your kids. Because it's on your heart, you're constantly talking about it. Because it's on your heart, you're constantly thinking about it. And, it, and, and it's almost as though this is imagery here in verses 8 and 9. When you leave your house, because you're always thinking about it, it's always on your mind. When you're coming back in your house, it's always on your mind. When you're going around seeing everything you see, it's as though scripture, my words, are a filter before your eyes. It's as though everywhere you go, everything you touch with your hands and you do physically with your hands, it's as though they are honoring my word because my word is always with you. So everything you think, everything in your heart, everything you see, everything you do should be defined by a devotion to my word. But what ended up happening is some of the Jews took these things that were meant to be good and used them almost as superstition. And they would touch that area of the doorframe where that word was, leaving the door as though it was a superstition. Like football teams do with a motto, slapping it as they walk out. Not all Jews did this, absolutely. Some of them took it serious and absolutely were devoted to it and used that as constant reminders with the, on their wrists and on their, on their heads. But for the majority, throughout the Old Testament, what happened is they used it as a good luck charm. Not being devoted to it, but just having it there as though that would make God like them better. They could still go out and do whatever they wanted to do with their hands and see whatever they wanted to see with their eyes, and just because they had it dangling from their heads and on their wrists and at the door frames, and they were safe and secure in the Lord. Missing the entire point was they were supposed to be devoted to God's word, not just have it as a good luck charm. Be devoted to it the filter for their eyes, the uh, guiding their hands, uh, protecting their minds uh, uh, in the midst of their hearts so it directs their decisions as it should. And if our mind is in the word, then our mind is on the Lord and we will have perfect peace. Perfect peace. Because I don't know if you knew this or not, the world is broken and bad stuff happens all the time. And it's not necessarily God who brings the bad stuff. The bad stuff comes because the world is broken. Cancer's not here because God put it here. The world is broken because of sin. That's why death is here, because of sin. That's why sickness and disease are here, because of sin. 
and because of the brokenness of this world. That was not God's plan. Just look back at the Garden of Eden. That was not God's plan. But sin broke the world. And now this brokenness, we have all these ramifications because of this brokenness. That's going to go away one day. We see that in the book of Revelation. And it will be perfect. But what we saw there in Isaiah 26.3, we can have, have a touch of the perfection now in perfect peace. A mind in the word is a mind on the Lord. And we can experience perfect peace even among the brokenness. No matter how much brokenness you experience and you feel. And it can be massive sometimes. Some people experience some of the worst things this world has to offer. And it can offer some pretty bad stuff. Let me tell you a story. Some of you know this story. I told it a number of years ago. But it's a story that comes from a song. Or a song came from the story. A guy named Horatio Spafford lived in Chicago. He had several daughters and one son. Son got sick and died as a child. Brokenhearted. Horatio still suffering from the grief of that along with his wife. When the Great Chicago Fire came, and he owned quite a bit of property and destroyed all the property. And so now had lost his son, lost his financial security, doesn't know what to do. And records back then weren't all that great. And so all the boundary lines of who owned what, where weren't there. They were destroyed in the fire. Uh, you know, nothing was digital. Surprise. Uh, and, and so he didn't know who was going to settle this about what property they were going to own. And so they're trying to figure out their financial future, trying to figure out, still struggling with their own personal grief of their son. And they had a friend who was a preacher from Chicago doing some preaching over in Europe. And he said, come and hang out with us just for a while. Just try to bring some relief. And uh, so they bought their tickets. They were going to sail over there, be with their preacher friend. Um, but about that time, there was a meeting called where uh, they needed everybody who owned property that was destroyed in the fire to come to this meeting, this town meeting, so they could settle who owned what where. And if you don't come, then you lose any rights to what you had before. So Horatio said, okay, to his wife and his daughters, y'all hop on the boat, I'm going to go to this meeting, and then I'll get the first boat out right after the meeting. And so they hop on the boat, and they go over, and Horatio's gathering his stuff, preparing for the meeting. Well, that boat going over there um, hit some fog and then hit something and sank. And all of Horatio's daughters died. His wife was rescued and made it. She sends him a telegram. He reads in the paper that that ship sank. He's thinking everybody died. And he gets a telegram from his wife that just said two words. Saved alone. And so he doesn't care about his property. He jumps on the very next boat he can and he, he makes a beeline over there for Europe to be with his wife. He lost their son, lost their finances, lost their daughters. And he's on that ship going over to Europe. And he asks the captain of that ship, he says, okay, when we get about the spot, that my daughter's drowned. I want you to come and get me. And so the captain knew the story, knew of Horatio. And so he came and got him when they got about to the spot. And Horatio comes up on deck and he's looking out. It's daytime. He's looking out at a clear sky, calm seas. And he just begins to pray. And the Lord brings these words to his heart. When peace, like a river, Tendeth my way. When sorrows like sea billows roll, whatever my lot, thou hast taught me to say, 
It is well, it is well with my soul. Beyond all imagining to me, he is able to stand there in prayer and be at peace. Having suffered what I think is the worst thing you can suffer in this life, losing your children, all of them, he says, it is well with my soul because you are still God. Devastation, terrible, terrible depths of despair. He says, there's still peace available. He says, not because I'm welling on, you know, dwelling on what happened, but because of the Lord. He focused on the Lord and wrote a song, a poem that was later put to music, that has brought comfort to people for 150 years. I mean, there's nothing that I write or put out that's going to comfort people for 150 years. All because his mind was stayed on the Lord. He was devoted to the Lord, even in the depths of despair. He had that confident peace that Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego had. Because confident peace comes from a heart that is focused on the truth. All kinds of lies are going to come in and whisper things to you that say, yeah, you don't need to be devoted to the Lord because, because look at what happened. Look at what, or, or, the, or the, the lies will say, look at what God did to you. Look at what God did to you. Look at how God's making you suffer. Look at how God's abandoned you. Similar to the lies that the enemy told in the Garden of Eden to Adam and Eve. That's not what God meant. Trying to interpret God's heart and God's process. When God has said all along, I am with you always. I will never leave you or forsake you. I will keep you in perfect peace if your mind is stayed on me. Confident peace comes from a heart that is focused on the truth. Peace comes from accurate attention, not attention to, 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 to other things, but comes from attention to the Lord. That's where peace comes from. And not only that, both with Horatio Spafford, with Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, and in Acts 2.42, the devotion that all of those people had was intentional. The devotion wasn't accidental. The devotion was a decision they made. They decided to be devoted. They didn't let it happen by default. They didn't let it happen just chips fall where they may. They were devoted on purpose. They made the decision. They decided to be devoted to the Lord. Devotion is a decision that you make one opportunity at a time. You decide to be devoted. And, and really, it has to be a pre-decision. You have to decide beforehand. Because if you get to the moment, the, it's going to be difficult to have a decision in the moment because it's going to be coming at you, bombarding you, and crazy. You've got to decide beforehand, I am going to be devoted to the Lord, come what may. I'm going to be devoted to the Lord, come what may. And you have to be in the Word and, and devoted to the Lord already so that you're strong when the moment hits. Devotion to the Lord will be tested I guarantee you it's going to be tested in your life, always, because the enemy is relentless. But you have to make the decision, one opportunity at a time, I'm going to be devoted today. I'm going to be devoted today. I'm going to be devoted today. I'm going to take that, that verse, you keep him in perfect peace, whose mind is stayed on you, that's going to become my mantra. Or maybe you struggle with a good attitude. Maybe you need to 
have, this is the day the Lord has made. I will rejoice and be glad in it. And rejoicing it every moment. Maybe you need to take one verse like that and be devoted and have that ingrained in you so that when a situation comes and arises, you can say, oh no, oh Satan, I see where you're coming with this. I know this is the day the Lord has made. I will rejoice and be glad in it. Praise Jesus. No matter what comes, I'm praising him. No matter what comes, I'm going there. No matter what comes, he's with me. So you can stand firm and face it and have peace that he promises because you've decided to be devoted. Because of the faithfulness of the Lord, not because of the craziness, the chaos of the moment. You decide to be devoted, not because of how you feel in a situation, but because you know, honestly, you know he's devoted. Because what was the, the, the definition of devotion? Tony, can you go back to that at the very beginning? To persevere, to persist obstinately in, to spend much time in, to be constantly in, to be faithful to. Would you say with that definition that the Lord is devoted to you? No matter what you do, no matter what decisions you make, no matter how many times you do that same sin over and over and over again, no matter how many times you gossip, no matter how many times you don't spend time in the Word, no matter how many times you say that Word, no matter how many times you watch that thing, no matter how many times you yell at so-and-so, no matter how many times you do what you do, would you say the Lord is still faithful to you? Always. I can guarantee, he's because I know it from experience. I'm telling you guys, I know this from experience. He is faithful to me, no matter how much I do, in opposition to him, in my mind, in my heart, in my own sinfulness. He still hasn't left me. He is devoted to you. So don't let the enemy come in your mind and whisper something else to you, because he wants to, he will. The Lord is devoted to you. He's faithful to you. He's constantly in you if you know him. Never leave you or forsake you. With you to the end of the age. He perseveres alongside you through whatever you face. Because he decided to be devoted. He he was so intense in his devotion that he came and he died for you. And then he rose from the dead. For you. John 3.16, for God so loved the world. And I don't know how you define world, but it means everybody. For God so loved everybody. No matter what their sin is, no matter how far gone you may think they are, or how far gone you think you are. For God so loved the world. And that is the most quoted, best known verse in all of scripture. And it says it right there. Even non-Christians know that verse. For God so loved the world that he gave his one and only son that whosoever believes in him will not die but have eternal life. All you have to do is believe. Believe in Jesus. Will you decide to be devoted to the Lord and his word today? Or maybe examine your own life right now and ask yourself the question, where is my devotion? What am I devoted to? What directs my schedule? What directs my decisions? 
Is it one thing or is it the Lord? Maybe it's sometimes the Lord, but more often than not, it's this other thing. This is what directs, maybe, maybe, <laughs> maybe sometimes what directs our decisions is what we want to be entertained by, by what we binge watch, by what's on YouTube. Maybe you say, I don't have time to spend time in the Word in the morning. Maybe it's because you're up late binging the night before. <laughs> That's not all of you. That's just one or two of you. It's not you. It's other, other, yeah, other people somewhere else down the road. What are you devoted to? What has your devotion? And then will you decide today to be devoted to the Lord? But be on the watch, be on the lookout. Because if you decide today to be devoted to the Lord, the enemy's coming. He'll whisper stuff to you. He's coming after you. You make that decision today, you say, I'm going to be devoted to the Lord. Maybe you need to be devoted, you need to come and know Jesus today. It puts a target on your back. Because the enemy doesn't want more people with the Lord. He doesn't want people following him. Even if you're a Christian, the enemy may leave you alone if you're doing more for the enemy than you are for the Lord. What you need to do is find yourself a level of devotion that continually grows. Because a mind in the word is a mind on the Lord. Be devoted to the word and you will find yourself devoted to the Lord. And there will well, well, well up within you a perfect peace that you have never known before. It all begins with knowing Jesus. And so if you're in the room and you need to know Jesus or you're watching online and you need to know Jesus, then you've got to believe today that he's the son of God, that he died so all your sins would be forgiven. And then he rose from the dead so that you can live after you die. That's his plan for every single person is to know Jesus. Will you believe in him today? Begin your devotion Will you be devoted to Jesus today?